Let's take our Bibles and turn together to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we're reading at verse 32. Let's hear the Word of God. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and all the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though condemned through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, please open our minds, illumine our understanding to grasp wonderful things out of the law of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the title of the sermon this morning is taken from chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Those words point us back to this great chapter in its entirety, but here also particularly at this point as uh, the pace changes. It changes considerably. He starts to get faster and faster. Just as he gets faster and faster, I'm going to have to slow down just a little bit uh, so that we can take in what, what he's saying. And one of the things that is not so obvious in English but is very striking in the Greek original is the rhetorical artistry of this piece, the rhythm of Uh, short staccato sentences that combine repetition and variation to punch home their point. Uh, The author is, if you don't mind me saying so, a kind of first century rap artist. Uh, There's that kind of fast-moving, fast-paced balance of of, uh, imagery that, that he uses here. So anything that we do this morning, and perhaps on one other morning, Uh, to take apart the text is only going to diminish the reading of it. So you say to me, well, Liam, why don't you just read it to us, Prince of Benediction, and we can get home early. (laughs) You have to get your money's worth. Uh, we're, We're going to take it apart, but I hope after we've taken it apart and we put it all back together again, 
that something of the charm and the power and the pathos of this passage will immediately be clear to us. It breaks down, if we're going to break it down for our, for our understanding, it breaks down like this. The things achieved through faith, the power given through faith, the sufferings endured through faith, and what we might call the homelessness encountered through faith. The author begins by clearing his throat. <laughs> what more shall I say? It's a rhetorical flourish. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell. And then having told us that time would fail him to tell, he just gives us a very interesting list of people and events, beginning with this, the things achieved through faith, verse 32. He begins by naming names in no particular order, certainly not chronological order, but names that if you are Bible literate, you will immediately recognize, but that because perhaps some of, some of you may not be Bible literate, you would need explained to you. The interesting thing for those of us who've read the Bible is that these names fall into two categories. There are five judges and one king named. Now, why that's interesting is that in all of the Bible, the book of Judges describes probably the worst period, or at least one of the worst periods, in the history of God's church. In the period of the Judges, there is a failure of leadership generally, and a failure of general sense of community in Israel. The, the worship of Baal or Baal, the, the god of the nations roundabout dotted outside her borders, has infiltrated Israel itself. It isn't that they reject God. It isn't that they reject the God of the Bible. What they've done is they've adopted Baal worship, as it were, and brought it into the church and put it alongside the Bible and alongside their God and are requiring people to believe in both. That is, to believe the God of Israel, and to believe the gods of the world, the world outside Israel, the world outside the church. Brought them together in this blend. Worship them all. In fact, so closely allied had Baal worship become in Israel that it was considered a treasonable offense. It was co considered a capital offense if you refused uh, to worship Baal. And it's in the, into that context that these men, the first five, the judges, are called to exercise their ministry. And then, after mentioning the judges and the king, the author goes on to mention the prophets, the prophets beginning with Samuel, who is the kind of quintessential prophet. And he is a crossover figure from the judges to the prophetic office. He starts the school of the prophets. He lays the foundation of prophetic ministry in Israel that is to last up until John the Baptist and the greatest prophet of all, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So these people, they're the people He introduces to us. And each of these people has a unique experience. No two of them are the same. 
No two of them have the same life experiences or face the same challenges or to the same degree. Because there's always something that makes the individual believer unique and exceptional and unprecedented. There are things in your life that will not be replicated by anybody else. They may look somewhat similar. Perhaps as you've looked at other people, you would have wished that your life would have turned out differently than it has. You had perhaps a, a, a person that you admired, and you'd hoped that your life might be like that person. But the reality is all of us have to uh, take whatever God and His providence permits as we pursue this life and pilgrimage that God has worked out for us. So there's a degree of originality to each of the individuals mentioned here, and there's originality in the outworking of your faith and mine in our daily lives. Very often in life, it does not turn out the way we plan, and often God throws in surprises, and we make mistakes as we go along. That's part and parcel of what it means to be human, part and parcel of what it means to live beneath the sun. But life will often throw up surprises. It was an enormous surprise to me at a stage in my life where I thought I had, uh, I had uh, come to the point where I just had to last another 20 years till I dropped dead in the pulpit, and that would be it, to be then transported across the Atlantic to America. That, that, would, that had never entered my head, so I'm going to drop dead in your pulpit instead. But that's the, that's the story of our lives. For poor Joshua, do you know what Joshua thought? He'd only one really exceptional day in his experience. Only one. He talks about that day. This was a day like no other before it or after it. That was Joshua's sense of his life, that there was only one exceptional thing that had happened in the entirety of it. Well, maybe you're sitting there and you think, nothing exceptional has happened in my life. Well, welcome to the world of the rest of us. Most of these men that are mentioned here had had a special call from God to do a special work of God. Gideon had been called by an angel. Barak had received a message through the prophetess Deborah. Uh, Samuel and David had been called directly by God. Jephthah had been chosen and called and appointed to an office by the people, generally. He had a kind of public call. The one thing that unites them all is that their work was the work of delivering the church from trouble and oppression. Some of them had special promises promises, particular promises of ultimate success. Others had no such promises, and they went about their work where they were faithful in the tasks, but they had no sense there would ever be a positive outcome to the work that they'd been called to do. All of them exercised faith. All of them are very human and fallible, just as we are. Gideon, for example, though he has a great record, nonetheless made an ephod, uh, a worship item for the Baal, and he was critiqued for it by God. Uh, Japhta was made a vow. He, you know, there are good vows and bad vows. There are vows you make at a wedding, and there are good vows. There are vows to 
keep your office in the church, and those are good vows, but there are other vows that you make in life that you should never have made. And this man made a very foolish vow. You can read about it in the Bible. And frankly, he didn't engage his brain when he made the vow. And if you're going to make a vow, which you shouldn't do except those major things, please engage your brain in the process. Samson. Samson was a he-man with a she-weakness. I borrowed that from somebody somewhere. Not sure who it was. It might have been Chuck Swindoll. A he-man with a she-weakness. He was wrong to take a Philistine wife. He was wrong to get in tow with some immoral people. And then there's David's whose sins are well known to all of us. These are the kind of people that God uses. People like Gideon, being brought up in a, wor- in a world of Baal worship, where it was a criminal eff- offense, as I said, an offense worthy of death if you opposed Baal. We don't have Baal worship today, but we do have generally held cultural values and dogmas which have taken root in the church, especially the church that does not wish to appear odd or out of touch with the culture. The culture does not say to us, stop believing in God and, uh, and accept our cultural values and dogmas instead. The world says to us, you can believe in God, you can believe in Jesus, but we want you to believe in Jesus and accept and teach the cultural values and dogmas of the age. We know very well what these are. We know very well the cultural uh, uh, the, the powers, uh, because we see them manifested in our television screens, we hear them in the news, we read them in the newspapers, we see them taking root in other parts of the world like Europe and in the United Kingdom and so on. And we see them emerging here. And like the Baal worship of Gideon's day, these are things of the world, these are things of outside Israel, outside the church that are clamoring to be received within the church, that they may dominate the minds and hearts of men and women. Gideon was raised up to act against those external threats to the purity of the life and doctrine of the church that was Israel. And that's what he did. He dedicated himself to God. He cut down the grove that was dedicated to Baal. In other words, that was an act of rebellion, a cultural rebellion against his own country as well as the other countries. And he organized an army of 32,000 people to fight against invading armies who were coming in against Israel. And you'll remember the story how it was that having organized this great army, he takes them to a to a river, and he tells them to go and get a drink, and some of them get down, and they lie on the ground, and they start to, to drink the water straight from, from the river. Others, others kneel down, and they, they scoop up the water in their hands, and they drink from their hands. And God had given him this bright idea that he was to separate the lappers from the sippers. And so all the lappers were sent home, and the sippers were allowed to stay. And at the end of the day, he only had 300 Sippers left to fight a battle with the enemy. And remember, he, he equipped them for the task. He gave them each a, a, a pot 
an earthenware pot, and a torch. And he told them to hide the torch in the earthenware pot. And these 300 men surrounded the enormous army of the Midianites. And then at a signal, they, too, they crashed the pot, making a terrible noise in the darkness of the night. The lights flashed forth. There was a shout. The trumpets were blown, and chaos erupted in the Midianite camp. And the people emerged from their tents or from their slumber, and they saw people moving around them, all of them in a state of panic, and they drew their swords, and they slaughtered one another. And Gideon was victorious in that battle. And he did it because he believed the Word of God, and God gave him a victory over his enemies. Barak was the same. He was a statesman. He uh, lived at a time when Israel was completely subjugated by the king of Canaan. He raised a small army to, that overthrew the Canaanite yoke. It was an amazing feat. And he did it because all the time he listened to the prophet Deborah, who accompanied him and brought the Word of God to him, and he believed the Word of God, and he acted according to the Word of God. Or Samson. Samson worked many wonders. He overcame an attack by a lion. He single-handedly slew, slew a thousand soldiers in battle. He picked up the entire bronze gates of a city, the city of Gaza, and their, and their posts on his shoulders carried the whole thing away. He was powerful. Even in death, he pushed the pillars of the god Dagon's temple. A mighty man of valor. And the reason he was successful, we're told, wasn't that he'd been to muscle-building classes. The reason he was successful, we're told, is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he acted on God's behalf. Then there was Jephthah. Jephthah was a person of lowly birth and inadequate means. But again, we're told, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he was enabled to endure and to succeed. Then David, King David, before David was king, he is the young boy who came to bring a packed lunch to his brothers who were in the army. And there they were, surrounded by this massive Philistine army, and here is this giant of a man, Goliath, taunting and mocking the Israelites. And this boy comes onto the scene and he asks, why is, this, why is this being allowed to happen? Does he not know who he's taunting and who he's mocking? He's mocking the God of Israel. He's mocking the God who made everything. And he persuades the people to let him go out and face the giant. You remember the story? He goes out with his sling and with five pe some pebbles that to put in his sling. And he says to the giant, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and all this assembly will know that the Lord uh, fights not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into my hands. And similarly with Samuel, who on one day he confronts Israel, and he says, you know, here you all are gathered, but you're wicked, and God's going to demonstrate your wickedness, because I'm going to call on the Lord, and the Lord will send thunder and rain. And remember, this is a dry season, he tells them, not 
him telling us. It's definitely not the dry season here. This is the time of the wheat harvest. This is the dry season. There's going to be thunder. There's going to be rain. And, and we're told that when the thunder and rain came, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, I said, none of these people are perfect. Many of these per people were guilty of sin, and their sins were a proof of their unbelief. But when they, when they sinned, uh, they acted without a divine revelation, or they directly acted against a divine revelation. But in spite of their faults, God used them for His glory. So we move on then to the power given through faith. There were some remarkable victories. Verse 33, the key is found in those words, by faith. Through faith, they were enabled to do exploits. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. Joshua, David principally subdued kingdoms, and they did this at God's command. Joshua subdued kingdoms in the promised land, cleansing the land, cleansing the church, cleansing, doing the work of cleansing that was necessary within the borders of God's church of Israel. David, on the other hand, his task was to resist external foes, external enemies, as they tried to invade and destroy the church of God. And both of these men, in their different ways, were faithful to God. We're told in the text that these battles were fought by faith. These men answered God's call, and they went in confidence in God's promises, and they worked in anticipation of God's victory in Christ over the kingdom of the God of this world, the devil, and all the powers of darkness for the redemption of His church. We learn from these victories of faith a very important principle that applies to our circumstances. God does not give victories necessarily without the use of means, ordinary means. You see, how, how am I to understand these battles and victories in the Old Testament? These were very physical battles that took place. This is hand-to-hand -hand fighting, sword-to-sword. -sword. This is fist-to-fist, foot-to-foot, eyeball-to-eyeball battling that they were doing with evil people, evil powers ranged against them. That physical reality of which the Old Testament repeatedly reminds us, that very physical reality of physical warfare with physical enemies is part of the preparation the Bible gives us for understanding an even greater war with even greater enemies that you and I face today. Just as real as this battling was, by sword and punching and knife and kicking and head-butting or whatever it took to get your foe down onto the ground so that you could end their life, that kind of very physical activity is intended to remind us that we are involved in a battle that is every bit as real, if not more so than that. Our enemies are not physical enemies. 
the church of Jesus Christ is not fighting anybody. His people do not fight with swords. We do not lift up arms. We do not attack our enemy with guns. We're not into that business at all. But we have an enemy, and it's not flesh and blood. We tend to think it is. We label our enemies as people. They may be politicians. They may be celebrities. They may be scientists. They may be this one or that one. We look at people and we think the people are our enemies. What does the Apostle Paul tell us? He says this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the authorities and the powers that lie behind the spirit of this age. We wrestle with the powers of darkness, the very powers of hell. And our struggle is not with human weapons, says the apostle in Corinthians. The weapons of our warfare are not physical. They are spiritual. They pull down strongholds of ideas and dogmas and cultural icons. They bring down these things as we employ them for the kingdom of God. And in our spiritual war, we learn from their physical war that in fighting the enemy, we use means. They used their faith because they trusted in God, but they also used wise strategy. They used military skill. They used their own personal courage. Sometimes they had to take account of those who didn't have any courage, those who were afraid or faint-hearted. The law of God allowed, allowed for that, by the way, and made provision for such people within the church. We always will have those who are faint-hearted amongst us, and we who are stronger must encourage the faint-hearted. Joshua is a great illustration of this. Joshua was the Jesus, Yeshua, of the church at that period. He leads them into the promised land. He encourages them. He reminds them that the living God is among you. The living God is among you. Some of you younger people, perhaps, you, 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 you kind of, perhaps as you absorb the kind of familiarity of us older people with the things of God, you might, as you absorb it, think to yourself, these people don't really believe God is alive. And some of us act as if God is not alive, that He is not active, that He is not there in in our circumstances, achieving His will in the world. Joshua says to the people, the living God is among you, and that He is going to drive out before you all of your enemies. That's the reality. That's God's Word to us. Our Jesus tells us the same, the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. The lesson we learn from these very physical fights is that in our spiritual battles, God is with us, and faith will yet take down all the strongholds that human beings, in all their wisdom, in all their ungodly wisdom, are erecting against God and against God's Messiah. You say, that's fighting talk. Yes, it's fighting talk. We're in a battle, brothers and sisters. 
Well, these people, they overthrew kingdoms. They enforced justice. These people who came like uh, the judges particularly, what did they come to do? They came not only to ward off the enemy, they came to sort things out in the church. They came to order the church, to bring order, to bring shape back to the church that was disordered. Do you know the feature of the times in which they lived was this? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody in the church was doing what was right in their own eyes. And the work of the judge, the work of the, 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 the minister of, in Israel, these men that we've just been noting, even the king himself, was to bring order into that disorder. It was to enforce the law of God again amongst us. It was to encourage self-examination. It was to encourage church discipline, encourage the, 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 the examination of the life and the congregation and so on, so that, we, so that we are pure within, pure in the way in which we conduct ourselves in a manner that glorifies God, that protects the weak, and that deals forcibly with sin. They enforced justice, and they obtained promises. This, by the way, does not contradict what it says later when it says they did not receive what was promised. That second part has to do with the promise of Christ. This first one, obtained promises, has to do with the particular promises of success in the work they were immediately called to do. So there were some remarkable victories. And in the history of the church, there have been some remarkable victories. As the church has shrunk down in size, has sometimes been abandoned as if its light was going out, and God in His providence has opened doors, has made waves, has created spaces, has sent disasters, has worked wonders, has brought the church back from the dead, and they ha the church has gone on to affect cultures and change societies. Some remarkable victories, some remarkable deliverances. Look at these. They stopped the mouth of lions. He's thinking about the prophets that he mentions, the prophets. Daniel, Daniel who was thrown into the den of lions. C.H. Spurgeon said, the lions didn't eat Daniel because he was all grit and backbone. Well, I'm not sure that's the reason they didn't eat Daniel. God shut the lions' mouths. This is what Daniel said. When he emerged, he testified to the king, my God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they did not harm me. Why is that significant for us? We're not going to be, I hope, thrown into a den of lions. Early Christians were. It's because there's another lion that you and I face. Our enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. And like these men, like Daniel, who saw God intervene to shut the mouth of the lion, you and I may shut the mouth of the lion. The Bible says, resist him, strong in faith. Resist him, strong in faith. The Bible gives victories to his church over Satan, no matter how savagely Satan seeks to ravish the church and to destroy her. 
They stopped the mouth of lions. They quenched the power of fire. This makes us think of those three Hebrew youths, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you read about in the book of Daniel, who were thrown into a flaming furnace because of their profession of faith. They were bold. They said to the king, they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning fiery furnace, but if not, there's the faith, but if not, who cares? We'll still trust Him, and we'll still take our stand for Him. And God delivered them from the flame. Their story is in the Bible to tell you that when you go through some extraordinary period of trial or suffering, when you go through a period where, as it were, the fire is burning you and, and all of life is being consumed and your, your heart is being consumed, your emotions, relationships, whatever it may be, that in the midst of that fire, there will always appear a fourth person, as they did those three men a fourth one who is in the fire with you, by your side, there to strengthen you, there to deliver you, there to bring you through the fire. Either you die in the fire, that's fine. He'll deliver you safely into the promised land. And there were those who escaped the edge of the sword people like David on numerous occasions, people like Elijah and Elisha. Do you know how they escaped the sword? This is why this is mentioned here. This chapter is about faith. Some of us think faith is kind of blindly closing my eyes and wishing for the best. Do you know how David survived the sword and the spear? He ducked. That's how he did it. And the text says it was by faith. And how did Elijah and Elisha escape? Because they physically got out of the way. In other words, faith sometimes knows when to take flight, to act quickly. John Owen, great Puritan, says, it is the wisdom and duty of faith to apply all lawful ways and means of deliverance from danger. And he goes on to say, not to use means when God affords them to us is not to trust in Him, but to tempt Him. So, how do I trust God? I take the means of escape that He affords me. That's how I trust Him, because I believe that He is present in all the particulars of life, even the open door or the open window some remarkable deliverances, and some remarkable reversals. Some were made strong out of weakness, weakness, general weakness. The people that the writer is addressing here were people who felt very weak. Here they were living as a Christian on the edge of civilization among people who were not Christians, and they'd been severe persecution before. There were rumors of more persecution to come. The temptation that they had was to drift away or to walk away or to bury their faith. And they learned in their weakness, 
They needed to know this, that there were people in these stories. Samson, whose eyes had been put out, whose hair had been cut, who was in a place of monumental weakness, and yet God strengthened him in his weakness. Or Gideon with his 300 instead of 32,000 struggling to fight for God, and God was with him in his weakness. Or you take the Apostle Paul with that thorn in his flesh, that constant reminder of his weakness. And he asks God to remove it, and God doesn't remove it. Instead, God promises him that there will be grace and strength given to endure it. This is what God said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. And this is what Christian people have been discovering all throughout Christian history. This is the way the people of God have been working since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve, discovering that God doesn't look at us and say, this one is really, really, really strong. I'm going to use him mightily. God takes the weak and the foolish and the ignoble of this world to confound, to confound the watching world. He takes you and your weakness. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, if my spouse or my parents or a child became terribly ill and were ill for a long time, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be, I could not cope with that. I couldn't manage that. And then something happens you discover you can manage it. You discover there's grace for that, day by day, daily grace for the trial. That's what the Apostle Paul testified to. I boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. I'm content with weaknesses, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong, strong in the Lord. Some found strength out of weakness to become mighty in war and to put foreign armies to flight. It's amazing what God can use you for. You say, well, this doesn't really sound like me. My life is very ordinary. The victories are won in the ordinary. It's in the ordinariness of life that God trains you, that God uses you, it's, you know, Christian history, it's not really, in spite of the fact that in our celebrity culture, and we have a, a Christian celebrity culture, the big names did good work. But what has kept Christianity alive? What keeps it alive today? It's just you and me. It's just you and me from day to day finding that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, allowing us little victories amidst many defeats. Beloved, those are the things. I want to encourage you, every one of you as God's people, every one of us, in the totality of what makes the difference, and that God will use all of us here to achieve His purposes in the world. 
God makes strong those who are weak and who know it. And knowing it, admit it. And admitting it, cast themselves entirely upon the Lord Jesus. Let's do that, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come to you in all our felt weakness. We come to you, Lord, seeking your blessing on the church of God around the world in this country and here in this building. We pray that you would deepen our love for you, strengthen our service for you, and above all, take our weakness and turn it into strength. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.